Let's uh, turn now to our study this morning, which is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20. Uh, Just that last section, 29 to 34. And uh, Jesus has been making his way from uh, Galilee in the north to southwards and through the east, uh, back westwards now to, uh, towards Jerusalem. In the next chapter he'll be in Jerusalem uh, for the last time. But um, before we, he gets to Jerusalem he has this meeting with uh, two men who are blind. Uh, so let's hear God's word. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them, And said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately, they recovered their sight and followed him. What does it look like to become a follower of Jesus Christ? Uh, The New Testament is full of examples of people who become followers of Jesus Christ. And it's it's instructive for us to to look at them carefully. Uh, And maybe for some of us, especially those of us who have never, perhaps never properly come to Jesus, uh, it's good for us to, to pay attention to how do people come to Jesus? What does it look like to be a follower? Or maybe a more difficult situation is you assume you have come to Jesus because you go to church and everything, um, but you haven't actually come to Jesus yet. You come to church, but you haven't come to Jesus yet. So what does it look like to come to Jesus? And that's the issue that's before us uh, in this, this passage. We need some instruction as to what Christian faith actually looks like. And uh, this, So this passage is a passage where Jesus is coming from Jericho uh, just to the east of Jerusalem and he's travelling westwards, he's crossed the Jordan he's coming uh, I should be going this way (laughs) Uh, he's coming westwards and uh, approaching coming out from Jericho Uh, possibly there were two Jerichos actually one was built by Herod later than the Jericho that was destroyed by Joshua uh, in the book of Joshua uh, and maybe a slightly different place so You'll find that in some, uh, in parallel accounts, sometimes they're saying he goes into Jerusalem, and here he's saying he's going out from Jerusalem. Maybe it's two different Jerusalem, uh, Jerichos, rather. Um, but he's here; he's uh, going out of Jericho, and in the next chapter, he's going to be entering the gates of Jerusalem for the last time in his life. Uh, he will never come back, uh, except as one who has gone through death and resurrection and appeared to many and uh, just before this passage we looked at this last week uh, we saw that the mother of James and John uh, were asking Jesus for uh, a special favour so 
the 12 disciples are with Jesus, and there's a crowd of other people, including the mother of James and John. And the mother of James and John are saying, you know, when you get to your kingdom, uh, can my son sit on your right hand and my other son sit on your left hand in your kingdom? In other words, can, can my sons have the highest possible position in your kingdom? Please. It's quite a big ask, isn't it? And uh, Jesus has to teach them that whoever would be first in the kingdom of God needs to be last and servant of all. And so the path to true greatness in the kingdom of God is not by exalted position, but by service. Self-sacrificing service. And that's exemplified by Jesus himself, who is the one who has come to suffer and to die and be a ransom for Many. That's how he describes himself. Verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So he is going to be a ransom. He's going to save people and buy people back through his death. But also his life becomes a model for Christian service. Now it's significant, I think, that... Uh, in Matthew's ordering of this account of Jesus' life, that he concludes this section with meeting two men who received their sight. And the issue of blindness is an issue that besets all the disciples of Jesus. Not physical blindness necessarily, but spiritual blindness. They're with Jesus. They can physically see him. They can hear him preaching. They can see the miracles that he's carrying out. The casting out of demons. And they can see all of that. And yet they still don't quite grasp who he is. A kind of spiritual blindness. That's gripping uh, those people. They cannot see the true nature of their condition. Nor can they see clearly the nature of the kingdom that Jesus has already inaugurated. The coming of the king means the kingdom is here. The kingdom has come amongst you. And so here's Jesus in Jericho heading towards Jerusalem and there's a great crowd with Jesus as he's passing on to Jerusalem. Uh, We can speculate about this but news has obviously spread that Jesus has come that strange preacher from the north has come to the south and he's, he's coming to Jerusalem and crowds are gathering. And also what adds to this is Passover's coming. Pretty soon the Passover is going to, to come and people are gathering in Jerusalem. So people are gathering around Jesus as he makes his way to Jerusalem. So there's a lot of buzz about Jesus that's going on here. And it's interesting to see what Jesus does walking past these two blind men. What do we know about these two men? Well, firstly, obviously, they're blind. (laughs) They can't see a thing. We don't know how they became blind. Were they born blind so that they could never see? They've never been able to see anything? They've lived a life of darkness? Or did they become blind through work or illness? We don't know. But the result of this is the second thing we know about them is that they're actually beggars. 
Matthew doesn't quite say that, but Mark does, Luke does. They're begging at the side of the road. Because they're blind, they can't make a living. What else do you do? But you have to beg. There's no hospital to make them better. There's no friends or family. No welfare state to look after them. And so they're reduced to this abject state of begging in order to survive, hoping that somehow something maybe will change. But to the outside eye, the situation looks utterly hopeless. And here's the third thing we know about these men. They obviously know something about Jesus. We can speculate again about how they they knew about Jesus. They may well have heard stories trickling through. You know, people passing on news as they come to uh, pass through and tell people. Maybe encourage them to think, in my abject state, maybe there's hope for me. Maybe there's something that he can do for me, for us. But here's the thing, how, how can I ever meet this Jesus? How, do we, how can I ever come face to face with him? How can I ever find this man who, uh, who seems to offer me hope in this hopeless situation? But then wonder wonders. Here he is, he's passing through. <laughs> passing by, what an amazing thing. And there's a great kerfuffle all around Jesus. And God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. How wonderful it is for Christians who were not looking for Jesus, who didn't know where to go to Jesus, didn't even know maybe there was a Jesus to go to. And then they find that Jesus comes into their lives in amazing ways. And perhaps at the moment when they felt their need most keenly, they're facing all kinds of problems in their lives. Relationship problems, financial problems, I don't know, all kinds of problems, illness, sickness, whatever. And at that point, Jesus seems to appear and come into their lives through one means or another. And suddenly a hopeless situation is filled with hope. Have you had that happen to you? Have you had Jesus come into your life and fill your life with hope? Thinking maybe there's hope for me if I could come to Jesus and know him. I hope that's how God will speak to some of us today. Maybe God will come and probe your heart today. See, Jesus is in heaven, but he comes down by his spirit. And he comes in his word. And he's here today. And he's passing by. Are you going to listen to him? Are you going to cry out to him? Well, here's some things about these men. First of all, they know something about Jesus and they call out to him. It's interesting that they address Jesus as the son of David. It's a strange title. It's not a common term in the Gospels. Uh, Matthew signals that, that term in, in his genealogy at the beginning. You remember, you know how Matthew starts? It's got that, what looks like a really dull list of names that leads eventually from Abraham through to Jesus. You think, why enough would you start a biography like that? 
And then you realize, well, the first verse says, the book of the genealogy of, of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew's signaling something about Jesus. And that's something that's obviously being known amongst the people who are gathering around Jesus. That they begin to talk about him as the son of David. Why? Well, in the first instance, he's, de- he's descended from David, the great David, a thousand years before. Great King David. It shows something of his origins. Have been passed round through the crowds. And of course, then when you think about his origins as the son of David and all the miracles that he's doing and all the amazing things that he's teaching and the authority that he seems to have, there's something special about this Jesus. And maybe people are beginning to say, what about that prophecy that was given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7? Where a son would come and sit on the throne of David. A son whose kingdom would last forever. The throne would endure forever. Could this Jesus then be this king? Could this Jesus be the Messiah that's been promised? And so maybe these men, these two blind men sitting by the side of the road think, Is this the man? Is this the one? The one who would come and gives hope to me. Friends, this, this is such an important step to becoming a Christian today. To be saved by grace, you need to see that Jesus is your only hope. There are many things we can put our hope in in, the, in this world. None of them last. Put our hope in our health. Well, you'll reach middle age and then you'll be on the down, downward slope I know I'm on it and maybe you are as well your health will never be a saviour your relationships will never your relationships you have with people will never save you your wife can't be your god your husband can't be your god in the end he or she will die and so will you and you're left before a holy god there's nothing in this world that's going to last So you need to see Jesus as your only hope. That's the first step in becoming a Christian. And the tragedy of our day is not just that, inc- just that increasingly people don't know Jesus at all, but worse than this, they know a little about Jesus, but not enough that they're willing to invest their lives in Jesus Christ. There's a former minister of mine who died last weekend. Said, once said in one of his sermons... He said, have you got enough of Jesus to be inoculated from Jesus? That you won't be infected by Jesus? What a terrible thing that you have a little knowledge that actually inoculates you against Jesus. I've met many people in Solihull. Uh, Many of them go to church, but they, they see Jesus only as a distributor of moral teaching. That doesn't meet the needs and hopes and fears of the human heart. Moral teaching doesn't help anybody, ultimately. But what we see here are men who cannot help but cry out to Jesus Christ because they see him as much more than that. They see him as the very son of David, the one promised 
from of old. They may not understand all that that means yet. They just maybe know it's a title and it's significant. But here's the thing. Their hearts are filled with desire. And they cry out to God. Is that your desire this morning? Has this ever happened to you? Where you have this desire for Jesus Christ and you cry out to him. And you want him. You need him. And you cannot but shout out to him. Well, that's the first thing. They know something about Jesus and call out to him. Secondly, they they fight through obstacles. Notice that when they cry out to Jesus, those beside them can't believe that they're doing so. And so in verse 31, the crowd rebukes them, telling them to be silent. So here they are, the two men, they're crying out to Jesus, have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And all the people are turning around and saying, shut up. (laughs) Who do you think you are? You're nobodies. We are the special people. We, We want to be with Jesus. Why would Jesus care about you? That's a common thought, isn't it? Why would Jesus care about me? It's a thought that often comes into our heads. Why would Jesus care about me? Well, these men, they cry out all the more. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And you see here, there is a, there's a persistence in a time of great needs. You see, when you have that sense of personal weakness and, and hopelessness left to yourself, or a lack of power, or a lack of ability, or a lack of ability to change anything in your life, uh, what else are you going to do but cry out to God and do so persistently? Keep doing it. And that's what drives any approach to Jesus, any genuine approach to Jesus. Keep coming to Jesus. And discouraging voices will not stop you. Nothing can stop you when you have that sense of need and you see your hope in Jesus Christ. And you may have your friends and your family saying, what a load of rubbish. Don't say anything. Stop saying that. Stop giving yourself to, to Christianity. I remember when I was a kid at school and a friend of mine became a Christian. And we were great friends. We shared all kinds of shared interests. Playing guitar, UFOs and all kinds of spooky stuff. That was the kind of, kind of person I was. And uh, we had great fun together. And then he became a Christian one weekend. And I was so angry. What on earth are you doing? I was really angry with him and tried to discourage him and put him off. Say, can't we just go back to the way we were before? You know, people around us are like that when we become Christians. Your family might say that. Why can't you just be like you were before? You were fine before. Or your colleagues at work start making fun of you and say, what's happened to you? Nothing will stop you when you see Jesus as your only hope and you fight through the obstacles see life is full of rebukers and ridiculers against those uh, ridiculers of those who would invest everything in Jesus Christ and almost every Christian faces that at some point in their life 
Some of my family members, when I became a Christian, said I joined a cult. A Presbyterian in Scotland (laughs) had joined a cult, apparently. He couldn't understand the zeal of a newly converted person. And I've met people who have had their close relationships disrupted because they have called out to Jesus in their lives. There is a cost to becoming a Christian. And the question is whether you are willing to face the cost and count the cost and then persist in seeking Jesus Christ, ignoring all the rebukes, ignoring all the ridicule, and keep going and follow Jesus Christ. There is nothing worth doing more than this going to Jesus Christ and pushing everything else aside. Because Jesus is your only hope. So you fight through obstacles. Here's the third thing. You are vigorous in your response to Jesus. So unlike the rebukers, Jesus has a different response to this man, these men. And he stops to call them in verse 32. He he calls to them and says, what do you want me to do for you? Now just pause for a second and think about that situation. Here's a couple of nobodies in the crowd. People who others are trying to shut up. And you're crying out and maybe people are standing in front of you and and trying to block you out of your way and trying to make you stop shouting out. And you're not sure that your voice is going to be heard and all of that din. But oh joy of joys, you discover that the Jesus you're shouting out to stops, turns around, looks at you and says, what do you want me to do for you? In the midst of all the din, all the noise, Jesus focuses on you. This is a remarkable the kind of remarkable discovery that everybody makes who becomes a Christian. That there are lots of people who know about Jesus, but who see him as a distant historical figure that they can never get close to, who are vague about where he is right now, whether he himself remains relevant. They might think his teaching is relevant, but not he himself. And he remains a distant figure to people. And they may have a a notion of, of the God who is up there somewhere. Distant, far away. But they have no certainty that this God up here would ever listen to you. But the great discovery of anyone who becomes a Christian and truly meets Jesus Christ and cries out in his or her need to him is that he is personally interested in you. That he turns to you and he faces you and says, what do you want me to do for you? It's an amazing thing. And when you discover that and you realize that, By the grace of God, you realize that. You cannot but vigorously respond to him. How would you do that today? You find yourself praying to him. You find yourself 
wanting to know more about him. So you start reading your Bible. You want to hear the Bible explained. You want to discover more about Jesus. And the way to do that is to come and hear the Bible explained. And you want to be with God's people. Because you want to talk with other other of God's people about this Jesus that you come to know. And to share your experiences of walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's there's a vigor and there is an energy that comes into the the new Christian. We don't just attend church. We have an energy about us that wants Jesus and wants more of Jesus. And we'll do what we can to find out more about him. And this, this energetic pursuit of the Lord Jesus comes with this kind of, what I may describe as a kind of indescribable glow about your person. Does that sound weird? Let me read to you Psalm 34 verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. I'm not saying that literally we have photons coming from our faces or anything. But there's a kind of glow that comes with a person who's met Jesus Christ. It's life-changing. You're never the same again when you come to Jesus. You have a vigor and an energy about you. And you know Jesus as your shepherd. The sheep follow him for they know his voice. Uh, You know, if you become a Christian, if you have become a Christian, you know his voice above all the other din of the rest of the world. So you have a vigorous response to the Jesus who calls. Here's the final thing. Uh, For those... It's not quite the final thing, sorry. (laughs) Another fourth thing and then the final thing. Fourthly, those who come to Jesus at his call have a sense of what they need from him. You see this in a couple of ways. Uh, So there's the cry from these two men. In the first place... um, they say twice, Son of David, have mercy on me. So there's a cry of need in a pitiful state. And then when Jesus has called him over to him, uh, called, him called them over to him and asked them what he what he wants to do for them, they boldly ask for sight. And Jesus grants it. Without particular fanfare or abracadabra or anything like that. He just has pity on them, touches them, and they get their sight. It's so simple. He just does it. Now, we've seen this before. Um, this, the request for a miracle isn't... This request for a miracle, this performing of a miracle, is intended by Jesus to be a sign of his identity. That's why miracles are are done in the life of Jesus. They're not simply done to help a person, though they do. But they are done to show the identity of the one performing the miracle. And what's happening here is that the giving of sight to the blind 
is an indicator of the wholeness and fullness and completeness of the saving work of Jesus Christ from our sins. To be fully reconciled to God and made, have the image of God fully restored in you and to be fully what you are made to be in relationship to God. Complete it. See, friends, today you need to come to Jesus Christ with a sense of your need of him. And it begins with a sense of uh, your spiritual needs, that you need the mercy of God. You need the mercy of God. And there are people who think that they've come to Jesus, but they don't come with any sense of real need. And the one thing that they need from Jesus Christ is the one thing that they're not asking for. They maybe believe that they're personally very good people. That they don't have a great spiritual need. Actually, in some sense, maybe I'm doing Jesus a favor by coming to him. Could be the attitude of some people secretly. But you need to come with a sense of your need of him. We all need mercy. We all need his mercy and grace. And you need to come to this man who has come as a ransom for you. To redeem you from the darkness of your sin and all its consequences. So the question is, have you come to Jesus about that? Not just are you coming to church. Not just are you singing the hymns. Occasionally picking up your, dusting down your Bible and reading it. <laughs> have you come to Jesus because of your need? Because of your need for mercy? You... You need to come to Jesus with a sense of what you need from him. Until you do, you'll never come to Jesus properly. But let me just finish, and we are going to finish now. Let me think with you about the Savior who stops. You might think, as we were thinking last week, that with the growing sense of seriousness among the disciples remember Jesus has been going to Jerusalem saying you know when I get to Jesus the chief priests and the elders and the scribes are going to kill me and then after three days I'll rise again and there's a kind of ominousness about coming to Jerusalem and you think that Jesus might be so focused on what's coming that he's, he's actually blind you know how when you're, you're really weighed down by something You don't really pay attention to a lot of things. You miss a lot of things. You might think Jesus is like that. But no, Jesus stops. Yes, he's thinking about the cross that's coming. But he's never too preoccupied by that to stop and meet with sinners in their need. Jesus never forgot his ministry. You may remember at the start of his ministry in Luke's account... um, Jesus is in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. And uh, he gets the scripture out and uh, reads from Isaiah. And he says, he reads the scripture. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. And set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus sits down. It's like he he drops this kind of scriptural bomb in the midst of the, the synagogue. 
Because the day has come now where the Lord has come and the Spirit of the Lord is now upon this man. And he's amongst you. And he's giving sight to the blind. You see, when anyone comes to Jesus and recognizing him for who he is, he never turns anybody away. John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Come to Jesus. doesn't matter how important you are, how unimportant you are. Jesus has always got time for those who earnestly seek him. Jesus came to serve. And so as the servants of these blind men, and his heart is no doubt heavy with the sorrow of what is coming, but he stops still in the crowd to each and every one who wants him in order to attend to their need. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? You might think that's a daft question. You know, here's two blind men and you say, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> um, but it's not really so daft. Jesus just wants to see that these men can see their need, that whether they believe Jesus can help them with that or not. They might just want money, you see. Might want financial aid. But no, they want to see. And you can see their faith here. Because I think they're not simply saying we physically want to see. In a sense, we already see who you are. We just want to see you face to face. That's real faith. I want to see you. I don't just want to see Jenna. I want to see you. Jesus can help them with that. And so he takes action. Verse 34, And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. It's the following that shows that what they really wanted to see was Jesus. They became changed men. Now friends, Jesus continues to be the servant of people. And I want to encourage you this morning that he will never turn away anybody who genuinely comes to him and seeks him and desires him and comes with a sense of your need. If that's you this morning, do not be afraid. Do not put it off any longer. Come to Jesus. Come to him in prayer. Seek his face. Tell him you're a sinner. Tell him you need his mercy and his grace. Tell him you want him. Tell him you want to follow him all the days of your life. Thank him that he's come as a ransom for you. And he will answer that. May God give you grace to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful story of these two men. And how we rejoice that they uh, actually received their sight. But more importantly, they got up and followed Jesus. That they saw who he was and uh, what he came to do. That, that he was the fulfillment of prophecy. And all that that entailed. Father, we thank you for that. We pray that you bless us here today. For any who are not sure about Jesus Christ, we pray you give them courage. To come to Jesus. Seek his face. Ask him to come into their, light, to their lives. For those of us who are already Christians, Father, help us to seek him more closely, to be more vigorous and energetic, to, to love him all the more. 
and to desire to serve him and become great in the kingdom of heaven by being the servant of all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.